Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode five for season eight. This episode was recorded on Sunday, August 5th, 2018, and at 10 in the morning, by my time locally. <laughs> Once more, around the playground, I am Drew Freeman, here with my morning Red Bull caffeinated co-host, Jay Straw. Thanks, Drew. I'm awake. <laughs> on this episode, we go full stack with the team from the book, Server Side Swift with Vapor. First up, we'll be chatting with Tanner Nelson, who will be talking about the Vapor 3 release. Then in the second half, Tim Condon will be taking us through testing and architecture. It is a big team, so let me go through everybody here. Tim is a Vapor expert, the founder of Broken Hands, and he's currently a mobile software engineer at the BBC. Tanner maintains the framework code, Vapor packages, and he's one of the original creators. Jonas is also on the core team at Vapor, and Logan is here to also help us see it from a business and a community point of view. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. There's like so many of you, and I, I was commenting before the show to, to Jay and all of you that it's fun that we actually looked at databases from the local and inside point of view with Realm uh, last show with Marin Todorov, and now we're going to see it from the server side as well. And I have to admit, Vapor is not one of my strong areas, but I did a lot of reading on it over the past few weeks. Who wants to give me just the first, the 10,000-foot the quick view before we dive really deep in, and talk about what 3.0 is bringing us? So Vapor 3 is a web framework for Swift. That means you can create things like APIs. Uh, you can also create front-end things like websites or even using WebSockets, um, real-time backend. So something like the backend for a game. It's different from things in Swift, um, like for iOS, for the for Mac, and for tvOS and watchOS, um, because you run it on Linux and you run it on the back end. And so there are a couple of differences there, but if you know Swift, you should be pretty comfortable there. Um, and it's a competitor to things like Express, uh, which is in JavaScript and Node, Laravel, Rails, for Ruby, things like that. So since it's running on the back end, I'm assuming that the UI system is going to be based more in web tech than things like UI kit, etc. Yeah, so we have a templating engine called Leaf that you can use to render mostly HTML, but you could really use it to render any um, sort of markup language. People use that to render websites or even things like emails that they need to send out from the, the back end, like when a user signs up. And that's basically the UI. Aside from being able to write it in Swift, what are some advantages of using Vapor over using its competitors? Well, really the main advantage is Swift because if you look at the landscape of web frameworks out there right now, there are only a really small handful that are statically typed languages. And those would be basically C sharp. The rest of them, if you look at all of them out there, like especially the most popular ones, Ruby, JavaScript, PHP, Python, um, those are all dynamically typed languages. If you've ever built a really large application uh, in a dynamically typed language, you know that you start to run into some problems um, and some areas where it's not so easy to build big applications. So I think that Swift being a statically typed language, but also a language with the syntax and the semantics of a dynamically typed language makes it really interesting in the kind of current landscape of what you can do on the back end right now. So as far as Linux now, obviously, we're, we're running in a different environment here. Uh, a lot of our Swift programmers 
maybe Mac centric or iOS centric and having Linux there, is that something that could be run as a I know why you're going. Uh, basically, you can you can of course run it on your local machine on your Mac, uh, but you can also simply uh, spin up a container running Linux uh, to test that your code works, etc. Uh, and when you are ready to go live, there are some mul- uh, various uh, ways you can deploy it: Heroku, Vapor Cloud, DigitalOcean, AWS. Uh, so so it isn't that different. Uh, a lot of people use a local Docker instance, for example, to test their code. Uh, it's quite easy to set up. And I heard you mention Vapor Cloud. So Vapor also has their own cloud solution for the language as well. Yeah, correct. Yeah, we basically we wanted to create something um, that was making Vapor easy to deploy because we're really able to curate the process of getting started with it through a CLI program that we uh, distribute called um, Vapor Toolbox. We distribute that through Homebrew uh, on Mac and um, APT on Linux. And so we're able to curate basically people getting started with Vapor. And then, of course, as they're using it and learning it, we're able to help them with our documentation and um, with our APIs. Um, But then toward the end of the process, when they actually want to deploy their application, uh, they needed to use things like Heroku or AWS, and that's where it got more complicated. So we wanted to provide something there uh, as well so that completely from getting started to learning and using to deploying that it can be a really nice cohesive process. Uh, Obviously, there's going to be different tiers of financial uh, commitment for that, depending on the size of your business and needs and and features. It's probably worth mentioning that the majority of people develop their vapor applications on Xcode, on macOS. And then when it comes to deploy, they deploy onto Linux. So you still get to build, mm-hmm. write your applications using Xcode and all the benefits that that brings, such as auto-completion and debugging, um, which you can do just as you can any other application. And then you just deploy it onto Linux. There are some small differences um, that you have to think about uh, and test. But for the main part, it's pretty much lift and shift. Yeah, that's the nice part about Swift is that Swift is pre-installed basically when you install Xcode. So if you have a Mac and you download Xcode from the App Store, like your environment is ready to go right then and there. There's no extra setup. And that makes it really nice for people to get started, especially who are new to programming. There isn't a whole bunch of complicated configuration that you need to do. You can, of course, do that if you want to be running in Linux on your Mac. But if you just want to get started and play around, it's really easy to set up. Also sort of one small comment that the Swift team, I think they came out for Linux three, maybe four years ago. And when they first started, there were a lot more differences. But since then, we've ironed out a lot of the bugs and their team has been working really hard to make it a pretty seamless experience where when something works on your Mac, you can deploy it pretty confidently that it's also going to run on Linux. Yeah, Swift itself is totally portable from macOS to Linux, meaning if you just write basic Swift code, it'll work exactly the same. The things that are less portable are libraries like Foundation that Apple offers, because, of course, those are written in Objective-C for macOS. So when they're bringing these Foundation APIs over to Linux, they actually are writing them in pure Swift and using C libraries uh, because Objective-C doesn't run on Linux. So that that's one of the main differences is the Foundation library itself. But in terms of Swift code, if you write Swift code with the standard library, you know it'll be portable to uh, any of the platforms. I remember when uh, Apple started introducing Core Foundation in the pre-OS 10 days, and they were basically writing core, they were writing Foundation in C++ and, God, even Object, Object Pascal. And eventually it got to the point where they started writing 
everything in Objective C. They managed to flip it、mm. so that they weren't they were writing the older APIs in the newer code.、Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if Apple's going to make that transition. Where right now, a lot of Swift is written in Objective C, but a, their libraries. And I'm wondering if they're going to flip it to the point where Swift will become their internal base language for everything else. They probably started probably some of the APIs now. Some of the newer libraries may be written at core in Swift, but we'll have to see. And that that will make a that'll make these transitions a lot more easy across platforms. Yeah, I wonder what their new network dot framework was written in、um, that they just released with iOS twelve. I'd be interested to know if that's a mixture of Swift and C. Probably mostly C since it's a networking library. Um, but it would be interesting to know if they used any Objective C in that.、Mm-hmm. My guess would be no. My guess would be it's C and Swift. I think for the most but, part they're waiting for API stability、um, to, to yeah, hit Swift,、yeah. and then as soon as that that, that happens, then they can start writing a lot of their own stuff, internal stuff in Swift. And I,、mm-hmm. I suspect at some point in the future, in the next couple of years, the、uh, foundation stack will switch out from Objective C on macOS to the full Swift. Linux-based foundation,、um, and it'll be the same across both. If I remember reading this correctly, Vapor is leveraging the Swift Package Manager, which is this—is that correct?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's it's this amorphous thing right now that is really more of a a hobbyist's tool because it doesn't completely lend itself for the 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 full iOS process.、Mm-hmm. But can you explain?、Uh, I was going to say I would argue that it's、uh, not a hobbyist tool, but rather. A pretty professional and at this point pretty polished package manager for the Swift ecosystem. Yeah, I suppose. Hub- yeah, hobbyist is probably the wrong term. Just the only thing it doesn't really do is integrate with iOS at the moment. It doesn't have iOS support, but it does have full Xcode support. And so anything that you're trying to do with your server side code, you're going to want to use the package manager for pretty much everything. It's pretty baked into the process. Yeah, no, but I, I definitely get what you're saying there. It's like、mm-hmm. in, until there is、um, a way to interface with the package manager from X. Code itself, it's kind of going to be limited to non iOS, non macOS use cases.、Uh, even though it could theoretically work, and you could take packages like Alamo Fire, and they even right now offer package swift manifest for SPM.、Uh, but the thing is, until you can really manage that from Xcode and from the UI there,、uh, it's not going to be as popular. Something like CocoaPods, which integrates better with that. Yeah, I mean, right now in in pretty much it, it, the straight iOS. Developers' world. It's going to be a CocoaPod Carthage world right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, there's still things that that are better for CocoaPods, better for Carthage. But the Swift package manager seems to have so much long-range promise.、Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the main issues with integrating with iOS is that the way the package manager runs now is pretty Xcode independent,、um, which is perfect for server-side code because you don't really want so much of your project dependent on what's going on in Xcode. But for a project in iOS, there's a lot of certificate management, a lot of Xcode-specific. Files that you really need to check that into your Git repository,、mm-hmm. and they just haven't caught up with that part of it. I think is is what I understand is the biggest hurdle they're trying to solve right now. It's always interesting to see everybody views Swift very much as an Apple thing, but there are very interesting components of the Swift ecosystem that are very much not a hundred percent tied into. Apple and all of its operating shortcuts.、Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's always going to be things that'll take time. And, I, and I, I, I know that there's been a lot of talk, besides my my ever favorite talking point, the ABI,、uh, to see where the the Swift package manager is with Swift five. 
Yeah, the thing is with SPM, I think they're taking the process pretty slow because they've seen some of the major pitfalls of other package managers like we've seen with NPM and, you know, all the flack that they're getting recently with the security issues and with the number of dependencies on certain packages and size of folder structures. So I think they're really wary of that and they want to make sure that they create something that's really solid because I do think that Apple's plan with this going forward is that it will be Swift's package manager and it will basically replace everything else that that is there today. Like one thing, for example, it's decentralized. So there's no main package manifest package repository. Uh, I think we've seen on with CocoaPods that the repo on GitHub actually was like causing issues with being too big. I can't remember if that was CocoaPods or uh, NPM, but that was that was CocoaPods. Definitely. OK, yeah. yeah. About one day, all the iOS developers started getting smoked. By. So I think they're trying they're trying to be wary of that. And that's what's making the process a little slow, but I think they're looking at it as being the package manager for the long run. So, so, so warning to CocoaPods and Carthage, you two may get Sherlock. I think as long as Objective-C is around, they'll have a place to live. But also at the same point, I mean, we've seen what Apple has done with Xcode in the past and um, they're not super nice to third party things if they don't want to be, which is unfortunate, but true. I mean, it was it Xcode 9, I think that they just disabled everyone's add-ons Oh, yeah. yeah. So I think something like that could happen uh, in the future. So the Swift Package Manager, is that the primary system for managing things for Vapor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we rely heavily on SPM for both fetching the dependencies and also testing. Um, And yeah, so basically every package that Vapor offers is a Swift Package Manager package. Um, And that's actually a core part of how we structure the design of all of our code is around this idea of a small package with one, usually one, possibly a couple of more modules in there um, and basically discrete units of functionality that you can pull in. So say you are making an app and all you want to do is connect to MySQL. You don't want any of Vapor's other features like, you know, HTTP server routing, etc. You just need to talk to a MySQL database. You can pull in Vapor MySQL or MySQL package and just interface with that. And there's no reliance on Vapor or any of that other stuff. Um, so that's a, that's a really core part of our um, philosophy and we rely heavily on SPM for it. Are all the Vapor packages currently coming from Vapor or is there a third-party community building up more packages? Yeah, so we separate it into two organizations right now. We have Vapor organization, which is where the main framework is. And I there's like 30, I think, packages in there right now. Uh, and those are ones that the core team commits to maintaining. So if there's a security issue or bugs, we commit to fixing those uh, on in a timely manner. And then we have another organization called Vapor Community. And those are where people can submit things that they built for Vapor to um, kind of be more uh, in the community um, eye and other people can uh, feel more comfortable like helping and contributing to those. And we have a lot of packages there, things um, for third party services um, that people have created. Uh, and then, of course, people can just put up any sort of Vapor package on their own GitHub uh, repo. Uh, and so that's how, kind of how it works right now. Yeah, there's a lot of companies doing uh, Vapor packages as well that usually keep it in their own organizations, mm-hmm. uh, GitHub organizations. 
Um, so, so there's also a lot of packages spread around uh, in other organizations uh, as well. Yeah, it's really decentralized. The best way to find Vapor packages would be going on GitHub and searching for the Vapor tag using the new GitHub tags feature. You commented that there are some slight differences. While you get the entire Vapor that you can start writing in Xcode immediately, there are some differences. We touched on on the UI elements, but can you give us a general overview on, on some of the other differences to expect for, a, say, someone, a tried-and-true iOS Swift developer? Yeah, one of the things that I first noticed, so I have more of an iOS background. Tanner did a lot of it, um, but was a web developer originally. And for me, the biggest difference was going from iOS, where a lot of times the code is is sort of specifically designed to be readable over performance because everybody basically has a supercomputer in their pocket. And when you make an application, your application runs on one computer per person. So you have quite a few resources for most of the basic applications. But then something like a server, um, you're running on a Linux box with not that much memory and you're serving all of your clients at once from that box until you start dealing with with uh, expansion and things like running on multiple servers. Um, and for me, that was a big change is sort of thinking about how you're running this code and why we're so excited about Swift 3 and Neo because it handles this asynchronicity way better. Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest difference that people will see coming from iOS is the scale and the mindset of programming for one user on iOS compared to programming for 100,000 users on, on Vapor and server-side stuff. So you can't use things like a shared singleton that you just change because mm-hmm. everyone will be touching that shared singleton. On iOS, it doesn't matter because you've got one user. But if you can't mm-hmm. leak information between different users on, on Vapor because um, you'll have a 1,000 users all accessing that one thing, and if, if it doesn't crash, which it probably would do, um, at, at worst, you'll be sharing information that shouldn't be shared between users. So it's a very different mindset to kind of how you would program for iOS. So at this point, 3.0 is, is, a, is a huge step forward. The big change in 3.0 was, I mean, exactly that. As us designing the framework, we, I for the first release, were still a little bit stuck in that iOS mindset in the way that we designed it, uh, in the way that we were using uh, the system resources, especially around threading. And as we looked forward, we knew that we wanted to basically use the best method, use the state of the art, and something that could scale up to, you know, a person creating a small website, a small personal website to a company using this for one of their, like a huge service that's load balanced across many computers. We wanted Vapor to be able to be appropriate um, for any of those situations. And to do that, you need to, like I said, structure it uh, to take advantage of, or I guess to be cognizant of the fact that you could have 10,000 users hitting a single app at once. To achieve that, you need to structure things asynchronously. So for Vapor 3, we took the big step and said, we want to do this this release, and we want to basically set the foundation for people to build upon in the future going forward. And especially looking forward even further to things like um async await in Swift, which will probably come Swift 6, Swift 7, we're looking forward to that and basically to being able to take advantage of the things that are coming uh, very far in the future. Well then, so we know what you guys have done. We know what you guys are working on. We know what you guys want to be working on. And we also know that there are people out there working on it as well. And possibly now, after hearing the show, more people who are going to go find the uh, find the main GitHub. What what's is it just GitHub uh, Vapor, or is there a longer name to it? Yeah, you should just go to vapor.codes, and that has links out to all of our stuff. V 
vapor.codes. Obviously, we'll also have that in the show links as well. This is a really great view of vapor, and, and I obviously could not get a better three people to, to give us that. Coming up in the second half, Tim's going to take a deeper dive into the architecture of vapor, and he's going to talk a bit about testing. And we'll have that again in the second half of the show coming up in a few. Welcome back to the second half of the show. In this half, we're talking with Tim Condon about testing and architecture in Vapor. Hi, Tim. Hi, yeah. So when I think about testing in iOS, my first thought is XC test. So how do you go about writing tests in Vapor when you're working with Swift, but not, but there's Linux involved? Uh, well, so the main thing is that XC test is also ported to Linux as well. So it's exactly the same as you would write tests for iOS. Um, you can write your tests for Vapor apps using XC test. You can run them in Xcode. Uh, you can run them individually. Um, so there isn't really that much difference from how to run them point, uh, point of view. You can also run them from the command line just using Swift test or Vapor test uh, using the Vapor toolbox. So th there's not a lot of difference between writing and building tests for iOS as there is for uh, writing and building tests for server-side Swift with Vapor. Nice, that's really convenient. It is very handy because all those things you've got to know and love work mm -hmm. and it, it makes life a lot easier. Are there certain things that you test for that you wouldn't think to test in a standalone iOS app? I know we were talking about how maybe you have 10,000 people accessing your server or different apps. What kind of tests do you think are really important to write for these? So a lot of tests that you need to do in Vapor tend to be kind of the opposite, the flip side to iOS. So in iOS, you, you kind of tend to test things like accepting data, a response from a server, uh, and sending that response to a server, making sure that when you click a button, it sends re a request to a server. In Vapor, you need to kind of flip that around and test receiving that response. But you also need to add on all, all the different layers that you would have normally, such as your authentication for that, that re request. Uh, making sure that you can handle malformed requests correctly, making sure that you handle missing fields correctly and things like that. So you kind of need to test all of these different scenarios that you wouldn't normally test on an iOS app um, because it's kind of the other side of your iOS app in a lot of scenarios. Um, so that can kind of be a little bit weird to think about sometimes. And you also need to test your security as well. On iOS, you tend to hand that off to the OS a lot and just let it manage kind of things like keychain access and stuff like that. Um, whereas on Vapor, you kind of, a lot of that is down to you and how you want to implement it. So it could be that you want to write your own authorization package or authentication package, which isn't probably recommended. Um, you might you might want to test that you integrate with Vapor's authentication package correctly. You might want to hand off authentication to Google or Facebook or something like that. So there's a lot of different scenarios that you need to test um, and, and work out how you can test out on Vapor. So kind of, it's a very different world from iOS, um, even though things look very similar. Uh, I really appreciate hearing the idea of catching malform requests because I know having written client application to a server back end, the, the, the pains from my end of making sure that I'm handling mis malformed responses, and it would be so nice to always have those in concert. The two things that I, I always wonder about from a server side is stress testing and contention. Because with stress testing, you know, I can always test it and say, yeah, everything looks good, and then 10,000 users all put that request in, and it goes to hell. So can you talk about from a Vapor point of view as you're building this up, how do you prep for things like contention or stress? So a, a well-architected Vapor application should be scalable um, horizontally. 
So in the kind of traditional world of server development, you tend to scale your your servers vertically and you just put more memory, put more RAM in, uh, give it a better, better processor and you have one single box and that box is the only box that handles your 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 requests and, and lo- runs your application. In kind of the more modern world, we've kind of moved towards microservices and being able to scale across many different instances. So all these kind of issues of, of scalability and, uh, and contention don't really matter too much these days if you write your application correctly. So as long as you're not expecting to run everything on the same server, um, as long as you kind of abstract away your database and make sure you call away to a separate database, you can kind of scale your application as as much as you want. So you could have a hundred applications all running the same code behind the load balancer and all handling your requests. And with things like AWS, you can do auto scaling and just scale up as you get more and more traffic um, and just spin up a new instance Put, to put behind the load balancer to handle that request, that that traffic. So if you concentrate and think from the forefront of, oh, I'm going to have a shared cache, so I'll put that in Redis. Uh, I'll make sure I'm using a proper database, so I don't use SQLite, I'll use MySQL and put that in a, in a decent server, maybe put that in a kind of a cluster as well. Um, and then expect those kind of things and architect it correctly, then you can scale as much as you want, really. And it's more a case of money than than anything else of how many servers you want to throw at it. And Vapor and Swift really kind of lend themselves to being able to scale quite nicely because you can separate your, your app out into all the different modules that Vapor provides. And because it has quite a low memory footprint, you can run multiple instances on a, on a single server um, just in different Docker containers. So you can have a small memory server with a high processing power and for your kind of front end. And then your database can be on a high memory database server somewhere else. Uh, and so you just kind of have to think about it and how kind of almost anticipate your traffic. Um, and you, there are tools out there to help you test sending a million requests in 10 seconds if you want to see how you scale correctly and things like that. We really designed Vapor to support that horizontal scaling, that concept of horizontal scaling, uh, especially if you look at the way that we've designed the ORM Fluent um, and the authorization, uh, authentication and authorization packages. It really tries to push you toward, like Tim said, being able to spin up many copies of your app across many um, computers. So as long as you're not deviating from like the best practices there, you should have no problem with um, being able to scale horizontally. Are you talking vapor best practices? Are you talking server design best practices? Uh, Vapor best practices. So like both. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, if you're deploying to something like vapor cloud or Heroku or whatever, they would manage, I guess the back end. Jonas could talk more about that, but um. In terms of writing the code, uh, as long as you just follow how we outline things in the documentation and uh, we try to design the APIs to be hard to mess up. And that's a great part about Swift is that uh, we can leverage the compiler a lot by uh, static type information to make it just you know impossible to do certain things the wrong way. Um, there's still a lot of things that we can't do, but um, comparing it to something like JavaScript or Ruby, we can really guide the developer a lot more to do those things yeah um kind of vapors because vapors built on swift near and swift neo's swift neo's concept of threads is basically there isn't one um you have a set number of threads and your request goes onto a single thread and you stay on that thread for the lifetime of your request if you write your application code to kind of handle that um, and to always expect to be on the same request and you have to request services for that thread etc you're never really going to hit issues on scalability because you're always going to have this little self-contained request handler that can be moved anywhere or ported anywhere. Um, and 
Vapor's design does help enforce that, as Tanner said. And we see a lot of people kind of coming on to the Discord chat channel asking, how do I do this weird thing? Because I can't really do this in a single request. And it tends to be the case that they're kind of fighting the system at that point and doing mm-hmm. something they probably shouldn't be doing. Um, and it's just a case of guiding them into the right direction and saying, oh, don't mm-hmm. do that. Just rather than trying to in, you know, have a shared uh, singleton for your database, just get the database mm-hmm. request from your or database connection from your request. And then life will be a lot easier that way. If anyone that's listening is familiar with the concept of an event loop, um, that's something that Node.js has popularized quite a bit and also frameworks for Java like uh, Vertex. Um, that's exactly what Swift Neo and Vapor use. And amazingly, I, I, I get to say this to all of my iOS listeners and my, my Mac listeners, that was how you wrote Mac OS in the pre-OS 10 days, is it was a gigantic Pascal event loop. Oh, really? Window event, mouse event, keyboard event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. So if you're familiar with an event loop, I'm like, dude, I came from the event loop. <laughs> <laughs> you know the event loop. I got onto Swift, so I don't have to do the event loop. Welcome back to the event loop. <laughs> <laughs> As I said many times in programming, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> I had to ask you about which best practices, because best practices is that wonderful term that, that comes out to say, yes, if you do it right, yeah. what's the best way to do it right? Well, there's a document for that somewhere that people argue on, and so it's always good to, to pursue that. So. You commented, and it's a great segue, that we sort of architected it so that if you follow best practices, let's, Tim, as you said, let's talk about the the overall architecture. Vapor has a concept of of your request event loop, um, and it's a very, um, Vapor has a service package that is designed for doing dependency injection via services, uh, and you kind of request services from your request, if that makes any sense. You get services from your request and so it's all very self-contained. So it means if you want to get a client to make a, a HTTP request from your server, you just request the client from the service, uh, the service pool effectively for, for that request event loop. Um, and this may, this makes testing and architecture design very easy because you have these very clear boundaries of where your, your code can touch and where you're handing off to say, say a third party or a third party in this case in, in quotes um, thing. So when you're writing your tests and when you're doing your design, if you think about things like hexagonal architecture, where you have your boundaries and your ports and adapters, um, your your request codes can be very self-contained inside that hexagon. And then you make requests through this this boundary, which will be a protocol uh, in Vapor or Swift's land, um, otherwise known as a port. Um, and then you just make a request to that. And then when you're writing your tests, you can swap out the things that you're calling to. So in, in the real world, if you're making an HTTP request, you'll get a real HTTP client that you can make a request with. In test world, you can inject in a, a stubbed HTTP client and you can f- fake your responses. And it makes testing it in a very easy way. And the the whole architecture debate that comes across on iOS and, and in, in the rest of the industry as well, they all are basically exactly the same. Um, if you look at the core concepts of how to architect something, if you look at domain-driven design, if you look at hexagonal architecture, if you look at MVC, everything is basically the same idea of don't test your dependencies, um, abstract away things through interfaces or protocols. And if you do that, you're going to have a. It's going to be quite easy to write your tests essentially. And Vapor has its 
is designed to kind of follow these rules because you have these different packages for different things. So there isn't one huge vapor package that pulls in everything in the world. You only get what you want and everything vapor is very, very heavily protocol orientated as well. So I think I'm writing saying there isn't a single subclass in vapor, uh, at least in the core package. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which means that if you want to switch out anything, it's very easy because everything's behind the protocol. So if you want to have a different implementation for that protocol, you can write one for test, or if you want a different one for the, the real world, you can just write that as well, um, which makes changing things very easy. Yeah, to elaborate on that a little bit with a concrete example, say you have uh, a controller where when someone makes a, a query to this route in your API, you're going to fetch something from another API. So they query you and then you fetch something else. So to do that in Vapor, you would create uh, something that conforms to the client protocol. And um, by just creating something that conforms to the client protocol, you're actually not caring about what the concrete implementation for that client is. So normally when your application's just running, that would you know create an HTTP client and it would actually perform the request. But you can set Vapor up in such a way that when you're doing testing, that doesn't actually make the request, that just maybe stores the request um, in an array. So to your controller, it looks exactly the same. It still thinks it's making that request and it still gets a response back. But the actual client that was created just stores that request in an array. So you can um, go through, test that controller, test that route, and then you know look at all the requests that were passed to it and you know verify that it's making the correct uh, request. So it makes things like testing really easy without having to change any of your code. You can inject those uh, services. I'm assuming that for each of the modules that you bring in that you basically have either internally or or overall a best practices for designing the modules so that you know you you figure out one vapor module you're basically going to be able to to find your way through the general protocol thinking of each one. It's not a question where most of your modules follow a general design idea. One of our main goals with each of the packages and each of the modules is to minimize as much as we can the amount of dependencies that it has just to make it um, as useful as possible to things besides Vapor. Either you're just programming something really low level or maybe you're using Katura or you know a different server-side Swift framework. Um, so that's one of the core philosophies. But in each of our packages, you're right, there is... The one dependency that's common is the um, dependency injection package. And that's what helps us get this idea of how you protocolize things um, and use things in a way that you're not creating tightly coupled code. Um, So it helps promote creating protocols um, for the things that you're using. That way you can swap them out later. So that that's a core philosophy that's throughout all of our packages. At the end of the day, it's all um, it's all just Swift code, Swift classes, Swift protocols. So if you want to take advantage of our dependency injection stuff to help protocolize things, you can. But also at the end of the day, it's just, you know, Swift code. So you can use it however you want. So, I mean, Codable was added in Swift 4. Um, What was it like updating Vapor to work with Codable when it was added. So updating Vapor to work with Sephora, including things like Codable, generally involved cutting a ton of code out of our of your project. In a good way? In a, in a good way, definitely in a good way, yeah. <laughs> so back in um, Vapor 2 world and Swift 3 world, when you wanted to 
uh, interact with a kind of JSON, you had to write out all the different things for your JSON thing. We had this uh, JSON right. representable protocol that we used. Uh, and then you also had to do exactly the same thing for t talking to a database. Um, and so there was a row representable protocol that you also have to implement. And if you wanted to uh, hand off things to Leaf, which is Vapor's templating language, you had to implement node representable. And all these things were very stringly typed. It was all very much set up this kind of object that was a JSON object or a node object or a row object and give it each kind of key value pair. Um, and so in most of your kind of model classes, you would have hundreds of lines of code for all the different representations of this. And a lot of it was just exactly the same repeated. Uh, and then when Co Codable came along, you could basically just cut all of that away and just use Codable to do all of the stuff for you. So if you were just returning a model um, in JSON in your controller, in your roots, so someone makes a request to your Vapor app and you want to return, say, a list of users, um, all you do is simply return that array of user objects in Vapor and it uses Codable to change all of that to a JSON representation. And you don't actually have to do anything as long as your models conform to Codable, uh, which they have to by default if they're a, a fluent model, then it kind of handles all of that heavy lifting of switching for you. And that makes life a lot easier um, because you don't have to change, write all your different repre representations. So all the things that were stringly typed previously are now gone. Um, if you want to share code between iOS and the server, it means that you can just pass around this one codable model object and you can guarantee that if they're running the same version of that object, you can just send them back, backwards and forwards uh, and you don't have to worry about decoding or encoding them on either end. And that makes it really powerful as well, actually. And, and then the final thing is that we talked earlier about handling um, malformed requests. Uh, so if, if things were missing, and previously you generally had to check a lot of that manually as well. So you get your JSON request uh, data and then you'd manually check that it contained a username. You'd manually check that it contained a name, manually check that it contained an age, for instance. Whereas if it's codable, you just say, does this convert it, um, decode this, this thing into a user model. And if it codable handles all of that data handling, uh, that codable handles all that error handling for you. So you don't have to worry about any of that. You just wrap it in a do catch or let Vapor handle the error yourself. Um, and that kind of helps cut out a ton of code and makes working with Vapor and makes working with APIs and makes working with JSON a lot nicer than it, it did previously. Yeah, it's, a, it's incredible how small our, our validation package became in Vapor 3 uh, and especially compared to other web frameworks and things like Ruby or PHP. Uh, really, the only things we need to validate are like Email addresses are valid. Uh, you might want to make sure an integer is at least a certain number, like their age is at least 18 or something like that. But really, you almost need to do no validation because just Codable itself and getting the data into Swift's type system checks almost everything that you would normally need to check. I have to admit, I was amazingly excited when Codable was released for Swift 4. Having gone back to XML parsing by hand, uphill both ways. 
was a pain. What kind of limitations have you had? Because I loved Codable's release, but there were obviously some limitations that were there that still are there. If you get people who pass ints as strings, some of the some of the ISO dating doesn't quite parse correctly. How much of that stuff has been a fight or have you basically built in compensation for? I think Vapor does a very good job of handling a lot of the issues that most people would face when interacting with Codable date directly. Um, so one of the big ones is is handling dates and JSON encoder and JSON decoders date format by default on Swift is a reference date from 2000, um, which nothing else on the web uses, um, which makes life quite difficult sometimes when you're trying to interact with it. Um, so Vapor by default uses a ISO 8601 date format, um, which is what the rest of the web seem to gravitate towards. So it kind of abstracts away from that and handles that, that issue for you. You're a true geek when you remember the ISO number for dates. <laughs> I always have, I, I always remember it's the ISO date and then I have to look up the number and say it's something. <laughs> yeah. But I even had I even had problems with JSON codable dealing with some of the ISO because it's unclear as to whether or not milliseconds can be represented by a decimal and I believe that JSON uh, decoder actually coughs on that one still. We're actually going to hit pretty soon here too another date event for the January 1st since 1970, which is pretty common. I think we're going to hit the 32-bit max in the next couple of years. Oh, great. Why 1970 disaster? <laughs> Get all the COBOL programmers back. That is a topic for another time. But with Vapor, you've got one language that it's based in. It's a strong and growing language. It's an open source language. You've got Vapor, which has got a growing and open source community and huge support behind it. The server-side Swift with Vapor book from waywenderlich.com is out. Guys, this is an unbelievable chance to meet with a core, the, the core team of a technology to talk about what it is and where it's come from, where it's going. And I would love to have you guys back in, in a rev or two to talk about the growth and how things are going. But guys, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. That closes things out for episode five for season eight of the Ray Wendelick podcast. I want to thank all of my guests, Tim Condon, Tanner Nelson, Jonas Schwartz, and Logan Wright. I thank Jay Strawn. I am Drew Freeman, and we go back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelick.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time. <laughs>